I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Two notes. Just two simple notes on a music sheet that director Steven Spielberg originally thought was a joke. A sound that some viewers hear in their nightmares, and some hear whenever they swim. A harbinger of impending doom that has haunted viewers for years after the film's release. Two notes that would bolster the legitimacy of horror films in the eyes of the public, and create one of the most recognizable themes in the history of film. It's called the Jaws Effect. After the June 20th, 1975 release of Jaws, beach attendance nationwide was undeniably down. The tagline, don't go in the water, had taken on a life of its own, and the fear that gripped a nation had a more lasting effect than anyone could have imagined. The film's director, Steven Spielberg, was immediately launched to the ranks of the Hollywood elite. John Williams, the composer of those iconic two notes, became an award winner and a household name. The movie itself would launch the creation of the summer blockbuster. But before all of that, it was a textbook example of one of the most troubled productions in the history of film. Between rewrites, set disasters, malfunctioning sharks, and a budget well over what was predicted, it's a miracle we're even familiar with the name Steven Spielberg today. And yet, he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. It should have been a disaster. On any given day during its lengthy production, you could have reasonably assumed it would have ended careers. So how did it become one of the greatest films of all time? So get your chum bucket ready and find out what the f*** happened to this movie. Very few people realize that Jaws was actually based on real events. Off the coast of the Jersey Shore, just a little further south of where the story takes place, there was a random series of rogue attacks that occurred in 1916. Over a 12-day period, five swimmers were attacked and four were killed. This baffled investigators because at the time, it was widely believed that a shark's jaw wasn't strong enough to bite through human bone. These were actually the first recorded fatal shark attacks in US history, yet no one knew about them. The public simply wasn't made aware, or at least not in the same manner they would have been made aware today. You see, there was no Discovery Channel to discuss it at length. No story of a survivor overcoming the odds after being attacked. No Shark Week to celebrate the fear that we all secretly enjoy. It was these events from 1916 that motivated Peter Benchley to write a fascinating novel in 1974 simply titled Jaws moving the events of the attack to then-present-day New England. Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, well-known in Hollywood at the time for producing huge hits such as The Sound of Music, The Sting, and Sugarland Express, heard about the novel before its release and immediately snatched up the film rights to it. Benchley signed on to write the adaptation for the screen, and fresh off of their experience with Sugarland Express, Zanuck and Bram moved to bring in director Steven Spielberg. Upon first viewing, they weren't instantly impressed with Benchley's adaptation of his own novel, so they hired Howard Sackler, who was known for writing the 1970 drama The Great White Hope. Meanwhile, Spielberg himself was writing his own version of the script. While the man is certainly known as one of the greatest storytellers of all time, script writing wasn't exactly his forte. He brought in Carl Gottlieb to help with his version of the story, and then, as writing was taking place on two fronts, the film was rushed into production because of the 1973 writer's strike that was approaching. 
By the time production had begun, Gottlieb was still working on the script. There were often days when he would finish writing a scene the night before it was to be shot. Even the actors contributed to some of the writing, often improvising lines on the spot, including this classic. You're gonna need a bigger boat. That line, as legendary as it is, was actually made up on the spot by Roy Scheider. How about that? So, right off the bat, the imminent production was haunted by two factors. Number one, there are four writers for the screenplay, with three working on one simultaneously, and the film is rushing into production when the script is not yet finished. And number two, the department designing the shark to be used for the film weren't finished making the shark yet. Despite the well-publicized problems with it, the team behind building the shark was legit. Headed up by Robert A. Matty, who made a name for himself doing special effects on such classics as Mary Poppins and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, this was a team that would go on to have very prominent careers in Hollywood, because, you know, on those films, they were allowed to finish their effects before shooting with them. So not only was the shark not fully built, but the shark wasn't even finished being designed yet. The plan was to have a shark that could operate above water and below, and do a variety of moves and actions, but like I said, with the production date being rushed to the forefront of everyone's calendars, that plan was uh, quickly scrapped. The filming for Jaws was initially discussed taking place in a tank, so that the environment could be controlled. When Spielberg was hired for the film, he nixed that idea. He wanted to be out in the ocean, the real ocean, to be part of the real environment. When the camera looked off into the horizon, he wanted it to show water as far as the eye could see. One major problem with that idea is that when you're out in the ocean, the horizon, on a clear day, can show you up to 20 miles away. Within a 20 mile radius, it was nearly impossible to maintain the empty feeling of the ocean, and ships would very often appear in the background. And if a ship is miles away from the camera, it would take a considerable amount of time for said ship to finally move off screen, and by then, it's entirely possible that another ship or boat would have taken its place. The clear horizon was much more difficult to come by than anyone predicted. This sent the shooting schedule into a whirlwind, with Spielberg often covering less than half of what he planned to shoot that day. The long days and the lack of finished scenes began taking its toll on the crew, who were reportedly unhappy during the production. With the regular daily stresses that the shoot put on the crew, crew members often joked about how things could possibly get worse. I'm willing to bet none of them actually expected the boat to sink. That's right, the Orca, the boat that a good portion of the movie takes place on, had some type of malfunction that caused the boat to start leaking and slowly sink into the water. Spielberg rushed to bring in a boat to save the actors and the crew, who were still on board as the ship went deeper and deeper into the sea. The biggest problem of filming, by far, was Bruce. Bruce was the nickname for the mechanical shark on set, and was named after Spielberg's lawyer, Bruce Raymer. Though Spielberg himself joked that unlike the shark, even his lawyer occasionally worked. His personal nickname for the shark? The Great White Turd. The turd was big enough, sure, but with the lack of time needed to design the shark properly, Bruce proved exceedingly difficult to get working. In fact, the most happy accident on the set of Jaws was the fact that the shark didn't work so often. So many creative choices were forced to be made because of the shark's malfunction, such as renowned film editor Verna Fields, known as the Mother Cutter, thinking creatively about how the shark was presented. She went with a simple, yet effective approach. The more you look at a monster, the less frightening it appears. 
After all, the scariest thing about sharks is the fact that you can't see them. Sharks exist in the deep, the abyss, the unknown. This concept is explored brilliantly in the opening scene. To start the film, we're introduced to Chrissy and a random drunk guy that never deserved her to begin with. Chrissy takes off her clothes, makes her way out into the water for some skinny dipping, and then we are introduced to the film's star. As a film geek, you really have to appreciate the sequence in all of its glory. The scene is so visceral and so perfect, it sets up the mood and tension for the entire film. As the viewer, you are quite literally in the ocean with Chrissy. You are one with her fear, her inability to comprehend exactly what is happening. And as the shark attack commences, the camera never goes underwater. It keeps you uncomfortably close to her, and as an audience, we all have trouble breathing properly. Off camera, crew are pulling the actress in different directions with rope around her body. But on screen, she's anxious to get away from the unknown. And just as she realizes she's about to meet her fate, it's over. What we see on the surface is once again peaceful, and this D-bag slept through the whole thing. The next day, her remains, or parts of them, are found on shore. The coroner of the small town declares it to be the result of a shark attack, and police chief Martin Brody, played by the previously mentioned Roy Scheider, decides the best thing to do is to close the beaches in town. It's smart, cause logic, you know? Unfortunately, logic is in short supply, as the decision is overruled by Mayor Larry Vaughn. He argues that if beaches are closed, the town's economy would be in ruin. After a second attack, a bounty is placed on the shark, and that's enough to catch the attention of local shark hunter Quint, played by Robert Shaw, who's willing to offer his services for $10,000. After Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, examines the remains of the helpless skinny dipper, he confirms the cause of death was a shark an unusually large one. After an incident on 4th of July weekend, Vaughn agrees that there's a shark problem. He hires Quint to take care of it. And the three heroes of our film set out on Quint's boat to hunt the largest shark of them all. Universal gave the film a budget of $3.5 million and a shooting schedule of 55 days. Jaws would go over both. Every problem that eventually popped up during the production would take their toll on the schedule. The 55-day schedule turned into a whopping 159 days, and the budget ballooned to about $8 million due to a myriad of issues this production faced. We might not even have enough time here to fit them all in. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Sorry, it was too perfect not to use twice. When Jaws was still in early pre-production, Spielberg decided the star of the film would be the shark himself. This may have been for the best, as casting wasn't exactly a cakewalk. The role of Brody was originally offered to Robert Duvall, who turned it down. It then went to Scheider, who ran to Spielberg at a party, and was sold on the concept of a shark coming on board a boat. There, problem solved. The other two starring roles weren't as simple. Both Lee Marvin and Sterling Hayden were approached for the role of Quint. Both turned it down. When Robert Shaw was offered the role, however, he... Turned it down? Oh, Shaw apparently hated Benchley's novel, and passed. The role of Hooper was offered to John Voight, which would have been incredible, but he also turned it down. At the advice of his good friend George Lucas, Spielberg offered the role to Richard Dreyfuss, famous at the time for films such as Dillinger and American Graffiti. Dreyfuss also turned it down. As it turns out, not that many actors want to be in a movie that starred a shark. In hindsight, 
it's clear just how much Jaws changed things. Nine days before production began, the roles of Hooper and Quint were still not filled. Luckily for Spielberg, and for the history of film in general, both Dreyfus and Shaw changed their minds. Dreyfus, convinced that the film he had just finished, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, would be a flop, and basically begged Spielberg for the part. Shaw was convinced by his wife and his secretary, who were both very excited about the part. So finally, days before filming, Spielberg had his cast. Unfortunately, the cast wasn't really fond of each other. Shaw was not a fan of Dreyfus. It was reported on set that Shaw would regularly take shots at Dreyfus, poking fun at his weight and his physique. According to Dreyfus, Shaw was a kind, loving, and hilarious person when he was sober. But Shaw could often be found drinking on the set. During a very popular scene in the film, Shaw reasoned with Spielberg that since all three actors in the scene were drinking, maybe he should have a drink as well. To add to his performance, of course. Spielberg agreed, and not long after, Shaw had an alcohol-induced blackout while delivering his lines. Since the scene would not be delivered as it should have been, Spielberg wrapped the crew at 11am. Later that night, Shaw called Spielberg asking if he had done anything embarrassing on set as he couldn't remember the day. After hearing what he had done, Shaw asked for another chance at the scene. The following morning, he showed up to set sober and delivered the most memorable speech from the film. Flawlessly. Shark comes the nearest man that man he start pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark he looks right into you. Right into your eyes. Shaw's behavior while drinking almost defined the relationship between himself and Dreyfus, as it mirrored the actor's relationship on screen. And then one day he was coming down the gangplank. He had a glass of bourbon in his hand, and he said, help me out, will you, Richard? And I said, you want me to help you out? Yeah. Richard took the shot glass out of Robert's hand and threw it out the window. At which point, every drinker on the crew went, ooh. That was the uh, shot heard around the world. It got ugly. It got ugly. But um, it was also Quint and Hooper living out that relationship as Shaw and Dreyfus. And the next scene was me at the cleats, trying to get the cleats cut. And there was water all over the place. And Robert took the fire hose and stood behind the camera and aimed it at my face. <laughs> and that was the one day that I lost my sense of humor. But that behind the scenes tension created another happy accident for the film. The actors pushed their co-stars to their limits off-screen, and it brought out incredibly authentic performances on-screen. While the actors could show up and knock a performance out of the park, the same couldn't be said for Bruce, the great white turd. Unlike other higher-fiber turds, it turns out Bruce wasn't much of a floater. The first time the mechanical shark was lowered into the ocean, it capsized and sank to the bottom. Luckily, there were two backup sharks, so as divers swam to the bottom of the ocean floor at Martha's Vineyard to help retrieve one shark, two other sharks were there to continue disappointing Spielberg and his crew. There are a myriad of stories related to the shark issues on set, such as the shark getting tangled in seaweed, the foam used as the skin for the shark becoming bloated, mechanics inside the shark corroding, and pneumatic hoses inside the shark used to control its movements, malfunctioning once they took on salt water. All of the issues forced Spielberg into a corner. He'd have to think more creatively about how to shoot the antagonist, 
which just added to the overall suspense of the film. Rather than showing off the fancy movements the shark was supposed to be able to do, Spielberg would oftentimes opt to just shoot the dorsal fin above water or barrels being dragged on the ocean's surface to represent the shark's location. Overcoming all of these issues is really a testament to Steven Spielberg more than anything else. You can imagine the dread he must have felt every time something new arose. Every time actors fought, every time a shark malfunctioned, every time a boat sank, Every day they shot over schedule, every dollar they went over budget. The weight and the anxiety of his situation had to be so overwhelming and ultimately worth it. Because once production was over, post-production began and we were treated to the birth of this. Which Spielberg admits he originally thought was just a joke. He for some reason assumed John Williams would have employed more of a swashbuckling pirate sort of theme to the film. Something that sounds like an adventure on the high seas. When it was first played for him, Spielberg actually laughed out loud and let Williams know he was not impressed with the theme. After all, it's two simple notes. A very minimalist approach to scoring a film. Thankfully, he let control of that aspect go and deferred to Williams, quipping, Okay, let's give it a shot. What fans ended up with is one of the most iconic themes in the history of cinema. Countless scholarly articles have been written about the theme, exploring a theme of less is more, and how the mere sound of it connects with viewers on a primal level. By the end of production, the studio was completely behind Spielberg, and when it came time to market the film, Universal was all in, spending $1.8 million, including $700,000 just for TV spots. There were about two dozen 30-second spots for the film airing during primetime TV in the two-day lead-up to the film's release. The mainstays for marketing were the film's theme by John Williams, and the poster, which was designed by the novel's cover artist. Both images are quite similar, but Castell decided the book's cover wasn't scary enough, and made the film's poster decidedly more vicious in its appearance. The amount of merch created for the film was simply mind-boggling. A soundtrack album, t-shirts, water pistols, plastic cups, games, posters, beach towels, blankets, and a book that was based on the movie that was based on the book. Jaws opened in 409 theaters with a $7 million weekend, almost matching its production costs in just three days flat. After a month, it expanded to over 700 theaters, and after another three weeks, it was showing in over 950 theaters in the US. In just 59 days, it earned $100 million at the box office, and in 78 days, it overtook The Godfather as the highest grossing film in North American history. It became the highest grossing film of all time until its record was broken two years later by Star Wars, made by Spielberg's good friend George Lucas. It had its detractors, but critics mostly sang the film's praises. New York Magazine described the film as an exhilarating adventure entertainment of the highest order. Robert Shaw's performance was called absolutely magnificent. Spielberg was also commended by critics, with New Times Magazine writing, Spielberg is blessed with a talent that is absurdly absent from most American filmmakers these days. This man actually knows how to tell a story on screen. Jaws won three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and Best Dramatic Score. It was nominated for Best Picture, but lost out to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Since 1975, the film had been hailed as one of the greatest of all time. The American Film Institute included it on many of their best of all time lists. It earned second place on AFI's 100 Most Thrilling Films list, behind only Psycho. 
The score by John Williams likewise earned 6th place on AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores list. The Shark himself made number 18 on AFI's 50 Best Villains, and Roy Scheider's improvised You're gonna need a bigger boat. got 35th on AFI's Top 100 Movie Quotes, which fulfills my bet that I couldn't fit that quote into this video three times. Greg, you owe me 20 bucks. The tagline, Don't Go in the Water, was fully realized through its audience, which, as we discussed earlier, caused severe anxiety in many filmgoers. The film's success was credited as the reason that beach attendance plummeted that year nationwide. Jaws made it genuinely scary to go into the water. It changed the public perception of sharks in such a negative way that it took decades to fight for sharks to be protected rather than hunted. The deep-seated anxiety that viewers experienced watching the film then has thankfully transformed into a much healthier type of anxiety today. In fact, Alamo Drafthouse actually embraced that fear, creating a much-loved and extremely popular movie-going experience, Jaws on the Water, which invites fans to view the film from the center of a lake while their feet dangle off an inner tube into the dark abyss below, not quite knowing what's underneath. One of its greatest accomplishments is that Jaws itself established summer as the prime season for must-see box office smashes. With Star Wars following suit two years later, studios began looking at the calendar differently, and it set the tone for many summers to come, with moviegoers arguing which year in history takes the cake. So as it turns out, we actually did cover most of the film's issues. Sure, we missed a couple of things here and there, like stuntmen with no experience, water taxi wars, and a little person in a cage that was almost eaten. But we covered the bulk. And as for housing the inevitable troll comments below, You're gonna need a bigger boat. 